Well, let's open our Bibles if you, hopefully maybe you still have your place there to the book of Romans, Romans chapter four. Appreciate Witt reading for us this morning and I did ask him to read a bit of the context of our message this morning. So let's pray again and then I will read our main text for this morning. Oh Lord, you are God and we are not. And that is not just our theology, our doctrine, but it is our happy confession. You and you alone are the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And so we praise you, our creator God. We praise you, the God who raises the dead. We praise you for this truth of resurrection. So Lord, now as we open our Bibles, would you open your word to us? Lord, would you give light and life as we will see, Lord willing, in the weeks and months to come in Romans 5 through 8, this word, life, alive. Lord, make us alive to you this morning. Help me open your word to us that we may be changed through our Lord Jesus Christ and through the gospel. We pray in his name, amen. Well, friends, let's start actually with Romans 5.1. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That will be the last verse of our text this morning. And now let's go to the, to the first verse of our text, which is verse 18, where, where Whitney left off there. Romans 4:18. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Romans 4, 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was, quote, counted to him as righteousness. Verse 23, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Friends, the scripture says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that again is Romans 5.1. Now Romans 5.1, I like to think of it as a bit of a hinge verse. And that is that Romans 5.1, if you open the door this way, then Romans 5.1, just this one verse, serves as the statement, as the foundation for all that comes after, particularly for Romans chapters 5 through 8. But also, as a hinge verse, Romans 5.1, if you uh, open the door the other way, Romans 5.1 also, in a very short way, summarizes all that Paul has been teaching up to this point, particularly what he says in that first half of Romans 5.1, when he simply says, simply and yet profoundly, he says what? He says, we have been justified by faith. So it is a hinge verse. Now look at it for just a moment. The key word there in Romans 5.1 is justified. It's this idea of justification. Very quickly, what does this verse say about the truth of justification? Well, I think it says at least three things that we won't get into in any depth, but it clearly says that justification is by faith. It also says, since we have been justified. In other words, he speaks of it in the past tense here. He speaks of justification as a once-for-all thing. Justification is once-for-all, and it is in the past tense, but it absolutely has present ramifications. As he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, since we have been justified by faith, we have, present tense, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I was pleased to see uh, this past week uh, an article on the Founders Ministry website entitled The Practicality of Justification. I was pleased to see this as I thought about how we have been uh, going through the book of Romans and in recent weeks and even the last couple of months, we've been looking at the truths about salvation, about the gospel, about righteousness, and to see this article about the practicality of justification. Maybe just a quick sample, a flavor of what the author says here. His name is John Lee. He says, we all have bad days. Days where we get a parking ticket, an unexpected bill comes in, your boss gives you an extra assignment, and everything seems to be going against you. In your frustration, you yell at the kids, you kick the dog, and lash out at your spouse. The doctrine of justification teaches us that in that moment of sinful frustration and angry outbursts, you are as accepted by the Father as Christ is accepted. God sees you with as much affection and tenderness in that weak moment as he sees his very own son, because it's not your performance that makes God love you. There is nothing left in you for God to condemn. His burden in this article is to say that this is not merely a, 
uh, a truth for maybe theology nerds or for those who are in academics, but this is the practicality of the doctrine of justification. When we're talking about justification, we're talking about righteousness, the righteousness of God, the righteousness that we need because of our sin and our wickedness. He says in this article, he says four things, and I'll give these things to you quickly. He says, first, justification by faith alone teaches us that you are as accepted by God on your best day as you are on your worst day. Justification by faith alone teaches us that your salvation is as secure on your best day as you are on your worst day. When you know you're completely justified, he says, number three, you no longer have to compete with others. You are accepted by God, declared righteous through Jesus Christ. And then fourth, he says, when you know you're completely justified before God, you are not held captive to the opinions of others. Well, I want to do two things as we look into the text, as we look into God's word this morning. Two headings. And the first is to make sure that we get the context of Romans chapter 4. It's always good for us to be reminded. It has been uh, three weeks since we've last been in Romans. And so I hope this will benefit all of us, that we would get the context of Romans chapter 4. And the heading there is this. It is faith alone. Faith alone. And then secondly, this morning in the text that we've read just a few minutes ago, we will see Abraham's justification and ours. Abraham's justification and ours. May the Lord help us. First of all, look with me and consider this idea of faith alone. Faith alone. This is the context, the big picture of Romans chapter 4. Now, Romans chapter 4, you can really expand back to Romans 3, 27. And so you can say it begins in Romans 3, 27 and goes through Romans 4, 25. And this is a big unit. And so what Paul is doing, what Paul is doing in Romans 3, 27 through 31, in 3, 27 through 31, is he's taking one idea. He's given a lot of ideas. He's given a lot of important doctrinal ideas already in what has been called the most important paragraph of the Bible. And what is that? You remember Romans 3, 21 through 26, chocked full of goodness. And so what Paul does beginning in verse 27 is he isolates, he singles out one of those ideas, and that idea is faith, faith. Now you think, you think back, and you think back to 500 years ago, and we're familiar, perhaps you're familiar, with, with what's called the Protestant Reformation and, and the debates about the righteousness of God and justification. And there actually was no disagreement that justification was by faith. When you think about the Roman Catholic Church and, and those who were called uh, the protesters or the Protestants, there was no disagreement that justification was by faith. But what we see here clearly from Romans 4 is that it is faith plus nothing else. It is 
uh, to use the fancy phrase sola fide, it is faith alone. And so what Paul does here, uh, just in, in these four or five verses in 27 through 31, he says first, he says that faith excludes boasting. Where you have faith, where you have justifying faith, there's no longer any room for boasting. Faith excludes boasting. You see, he says that in verse 27, and then he also says that in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Not only does Paul say that faith excludes boasting in 3.27 and in 4.1 and 2, but then he also says that faith excludes works. Romans 3.28 is a very important verse. And it goes with, he unpacks this in Romans 4, 3 through 8. You see, Romans 4, 3 through 8 goes with 3.28, and the point is faith excludes works. Now, friends, we know, and we'll, we'll see this again, that true faith, saving faith, leads to works. Save, this is something that I think, in part, because of, of malpractice in the church, which reminds us that we need to be careful of our teaching, there is a lack, listen to me, there is a lack of understanding, even among, yes, born-again believers of the nature of saving faith. The nature of saving faith. True faith leads to works, but Paul is saying here in 3 through 8 and in 328, he says the faith that justifies, the faith that saves, excludes works. It is not faith plus works. Look at verse 3 of Romans 4. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, Romans 4, 4, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Very quickly, as we're still under this first heading of faith alone, uh, getting the context, the big picture of Romans chapter 4, which in many ways is just expanding upon what he says at the end of Romans 3. He says faith excludes boasting. He says faith, justifying faith, excludes works. And then he says faith includes Gentiles. That, that is, listen, you don't have to be uh, circumcised. You don't have to belong to, quote, unquote, the people of God. You don't have to be uh, Jewish. Faith includes the Gentiles because this has always been God's plan, not only for his people, the Jews, but for all people. And so Paul says this in Romans 3, 29 and 30, and then he unpacks it in Romans 4, 9 through 12. Again, you, you get the idea here, right? He's making these important statements at the end of chapter 3, and then he fleshes them out more and more in chapter 4. 
Look at chapter four, verse nine. Is this blessing? This blessing, friends, there is no greater blessing. There is no greater blessing. We're not talking here about God reaching, so to speak, inside of your heart and transforming you. We're talking about God declaring you righteous, accepting you for the sake of the beloved, declaring you right in his sight. It's what's called an alien righteousness. It's not yours. It's the righteousness of Christ given to you, this blessedness. Verse nine, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. Romans 4, 9 through 12 goes with 3, 29 and 30. And this is first inclusion. Faith includes the Gentiles. Praise God. It excludes boasting. It excludes works. You cannot be right with God by believing plus, simply by believing, by repenting of your sins. And it includes the Gentiles. And oh, by the way, uh, just so that we don't miss this, in the very last verse of chapter three, he speaks about faith and the law. And then in Romans 4, 13 through 17, which Whit read for us, he speaks about faith and the law. Now we're finally landing in our passage. But let me say one more thing, just to summarize, just so that we will have the, the idea of Romans chapter four. What is Romans chapter four about? Well, in many ways, it's about Abraham. And let me just summarize it for you one more way as one man has put it like this. Here's Romans chapter four, verses one through eight. Abraham was not justified by works. Verses nine through 12, Abraham was not justified by circumcision. Verses 13 through 17, Abraham was not justified by the law. Verses 18 through 22, Abraham was justified by faith, not by works, not by circumcision, not by the law, but by faith. Oh yeah, and then verses 23 through 25, and what does this have to do with us? Paul says, look with me at verse 18, and here we're thinking about that second heading without leaving the first really behind at all. The first heading was faith alone. The second heading is this, Abraham's justification and ours. Abraham's justification and ours, the God who raises the dead. Look at Romans 4.18. It says, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. 
I'll pay particular attention to verse 18. At the very end, as we've just read, it says, so shall your offspring be. And here, uh, Paul is quoting from Genesis 15, 5. What was it? What was the object of Abraham's hope? First of all, I was going to ask, who is it speaking about in verse 18? Let's just not take for granted the obvious when it says, in hope, he believed against hope. The dominant human figure in this chapter is Abraham. And when we learn about how Abraham was made right with God, we learn about how we are made right with God. What was the object of his hope? The object of his hope ultimately was God's promise. If you just look at verses 13 through 22, which we're not going to do right now, you see this word over, I think it's eight times, promise, promise, promise. What was the object of Abraham's hope? It was the promise that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. But notice what it says. It says, in hope, he believed against hope. You know this phrase, right? He believed against hope. When I read this phrase, I think about a Saturday when you're at your house and everything is going dandy. And then... uh, to all appearances, it seems like uh, one of your major appliances is going out. The funny noise, the, the beeping, you might even be good at repairing such things, but to all appearances, it does seem pretty clear that this appliance may have bit the dust. And so you, what do you do? You hope against hope. You hope against hope and that if you unplug the appliance and if you plug it back in, maybe it will just have been your imagination. Or if you can just tweak it, if you can just push the right buttons, you hope against hope. Or forgive me if you're not a sports fan, as I look at the beginning of verse 18 and as I think about the recent uh, almost 51-year-old Phil Mickelson winning one of the major championships in the sport of golf and how with golf is a four-day event and how you get to the second day and you see this unprecedented, you see this man who's almost 51 years old in the lead of a major championship of golf. And if you're a fan of the sport or of him like I am, you think you hope against hope. And in those two simple pictures that I've given, both of those could be under the umbrella of of what we might call wishful thinking. You hope, but in reality, the evidence, the basis, the ground for your hope really isn't there a lot. But it doesn't speak of Abraham here as wishful thinking. This is not what's going on here. It does say in he believed against hope, but it also says in hope. In hope he believed against hope. In verses 19 and 20, it's going to say that his faith didn't do two W's. It didn't weaken and it didn't waver. Look at this in verse 19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, which is to say he believed Verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith 
as he gave glory to God, notice what it says in verse 21, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Fully convinced. Why was he fully convinced? Why? Look back at verse 17, at the second part of verse 17. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Notice that phrase. Mark that phrase. Underline it. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. What's he talking about there? In the context of this passage, what's he talking about? When he says the God who gives life to the dead, who calls into existence the things that do not exist. Maybe you've heard this phrase, when God created the world, he, he created it ex nihilo. He created out of nothing. God calls into existence things that don't exist, like children of Abraham, like Christians, like believers, like converts out of paganism. What does it mean in context? In context that God is the one who gives life to the dead. He gave life to Abraham's body, which was as good as dead. He gave life to Sarah's womb, which was as good as dead. And ultimately, he gave life to the dead body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the God who raises the dead and who calls into existence things that do not exist. Keep your place here and turn with me for a moment to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. This is the key verse, Genesis 15, 6. It's picked up by James in the New Testament. It's picked up by Paul in Galatians chapter 3. It's picked up here in Romans chapter 4, what we've been looking at. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. I want you to see this. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Speaking again of Abraham in Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted or reckoned his faith to him as righteousness. Now notice what it does not say. It does not say in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham received the sign of circumcision, and God counted it to him as righteousness, or, or, or God gave him right standing with himself because of his circumcision. No, that's in Genesis chapter 17. It does not say, and he sacrificed his son Isaac on the altar and God counted it to him as righteousness. No, that's in Genesis chapter 22. It does not say, and he obeyed the law and he counted it to him as righteousness. That's 430 years later. It's not the law, it's not sacrificing his son Isaac, it's not circumcision. Nevertheless, brothers and sisters, it is, and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And the same is true for us. Look at verse five. 
God brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And of course, the key point here is the childlessness of Abram and Sarai. The childlessness. And in hope, he believed against hope. He saw the obstacles. He didn't wish away the obstacles. He knew the reality. He knew the reality on the ground, and he knew his God as well. He received the revelation of God. He received the promise of God, and he banked his whole life on the promise of God. You know, I mentioned earlier that I think especially because of many decades perhaps of of malpractice, there is a lack of understanding of the nature of saving faith. But here is Abraham's faith. Abraham banked his entire life on the promises of God. He banked his entire life on the promises of God. What about you? You see, I think we should read Genesis 15 in tandem with Genesis 12. You'll flip there for just a second. Genesis 15 in tandem with Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And after giving him wave upon wave upon wave of promises here in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, what does it say in Genesis 12, 4? Very simply, so Abraham, so Abram went as the Lord told him. You see, Abram banked his entire life on the promises of God. Abram's life was not explainable apart from God. Stephen Lawson is a like-minded preacher and author, and in his most recent book, I believe it's called The Cost. He talks about, and I didn't realize this, although I've been following him a bit for some years. Some of you know Stephen Lawson. He talks about how he received a four-year all-paid scholarship to a major uh, American university to play football as he was a senior in high school. And, And he goes down the list and he talks about has he signed this contract for this scholarship, how he received all of these free benefits. Of course, his studies were paid for and his room and board were paid for. And then on top of that, he he names all these other things, tutors, any tutors that he needed. But then he also talks about how he was owned, in a sense, by the school and by the coaches. He says this. He says, as soon as I signed the agreement, everything for my college education was entirely covered for the rest of my time there. My tuition was free. My room was free etc., etc. It did not cost me a single dime. But the moment I signed the contract, it cost me everything. I was committed to twice-a-day practices under the blazing hot sun. In many senses, the coaches of the football team owned me. And then he says this, listen, here's the quote that I particularly want to share with you. 
He says, in a real way, this is a picture of our salvation in Jesus Christ. All our sins were paid in full by the sinless life and substitutionary death of Jesus Christ upon the cross. We contribute nothing. His finished work is complete. Nothing is left for us to contribute. Forgiveness is offered as a free, prepaid gift. Yet, at the same time, the cost of following Christ comes at a high price. It will require a life of self-denial, death to self, submission to Christ, sacrifice for his kingdom, adversity in life, tribulation for your faith. We've said it before. We do not divorce Paul and Jesus. Remember what Jesus said at the very end of Luke chapter 9. At the very end of Luke 9 and verse 62, Jesus said, No man putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. The cost is high. The cost is high, but remember again the words that Lawson said, Our sins were paid in full by the sinless life and substitutionary death of Jesus Christ upon the cross. We contribute nothing. His work is finished. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Consider the nature of saving faith. Dear friends, consider the nature of saving faith. Consider the young lady who says, even adamantly, oh, I was saved at age 25. But it was at age 35 when I actually changed. You say, oh, well, you there was some change at 25, right? No, there was no change until I was 35. In fact, I lived for a decade as a, as a hellion. There is, there is a misunderstanding of the nature of saving faith because when God declares us righteous through Jesus Christ, when he declares us righteous by faith alone, apart from works, as of course it's been said, by the reformers and others, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. We are transformed through the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we close for a few minutes, would you flip back to Romans chapter four as we see these final three verses. Abraham's justification and ours. Let me say again, in verses 1 through 8, Abraham was not justified by works. He was not declared to have right standing with God through anything that he did. In verses 9 through 12, he was not made right with God through circumcision. He was not justified by the law. He was justified by faith. Pick it up in verse 21. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. You don't have to turn there. But a little bit later, in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, in one of my favorite verses, Romans 15, 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction 
that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. So friends, as best as I know how to say to you this morning, as best as I know how to say, not only is what Paul teaching here, what he gives to the believers in Rome, also he clearly says believers in Rome, God did not just say this for Abraham's sake, although he did. When Abraham believed and when he simply believed, God credited it to him. He counted it to him as righteousness. Paul says to them, he says to them, God didn't just say that to Abraham for his sake, but for your sake. And I say to you on the authority of God's word, even for our sake today, it's not just God to Abraham or Paul to the church at Rome, but for our sake, as it's been said in another place in scripture, for us upon whom the end of the ages has come. Verse 24 of Romans 4, but for ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You know, the book of Romans begins and ends with this one unique phrase, the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. I ask you this morning, are you a child of Abraham? Are you a child of Abraham? You become a child of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. Through faith, do you believe in the Lord God, the, the, the God who raised Jesus from the dead? Notice it says at the end of verse 25. Notice this quickly with me. He was raised for our justification. Notice the end of verse 24 who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Notice again the end of verse 17, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Praise God, my fellow believer, if that's you, he raised you from the dead. He called you into existence when you did not exist as a child of Abraham, as a child of God. Are you a child of Abraham? The specific object of our faith here, the specific object of our faith is faith in the resurrection. Faith in the resurrection on the last day and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray and then let me speak for one or two minutes about the cross as we come to the Lord's Supper this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of Abraham. Lord, thank you that our sins can be and that our sins are counted to Christ on the cross, that he takes our sin. Thank you, Father, that in this great exchange, we take his righteousness that as we read earlier in Romans 4, as David says, our sins are not counted against us. Our consciences are clean. We are free and forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. And your very righteousness through Christ is given to us. Thank you for his resurrection, which secures our justification. Lord, help us now, even as we come to the table, so to speak, 
Help us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now there's places in the Bible, friends, that you can find a, perhaps a summary of the gospel. One of those that we often talk about is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There is somewhat of a summary of the gospel of the good news about Jesus. One of those, although at first glance it may not as, appear as simple as 1 Corinthians 15, one of those is Romans 3, 21 through 26. And what about Romans 4, 25? In all of its uh, just being so short, in all of its simplicity, the gospel is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's who Jesus is and what he has done. He is the only Son of God. He is the only Savior for sinners. And very simply there, it says in Romans 4.25, not only that he was raised for our justification, but first he was delivered up for our trespasses. Caleb and Eddie, do you have a passage from Romans 3? We might say that together this morning. A verse that goes along with these verses. Let's, as we come to the Lord's Supper this morning in just a few minutes, Let's begin that time by saying this out loud together and confessing Romans 3, 23 through 25. Say this with me. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. It's good. Thank you. Of course, it goes on to say that this, Paul goes on to say, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Redemption, propitiation. We're talking about the cross of Christ. And in the simple gospel summary that Paul gives at the end of Romans chapter four, we see that he was delivered up for our trespasses. Delivered up by who? By Judas and Pilate and by the Jews, but ultimately Romans 8.32. God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. This takes us back to Isaiah 53, where it speaks twice of, of him being delivered up. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sin. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. By his wounds, we are healed. Even though we all like sheep have gone astray, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all.